Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer. Well, hello to you this week. I've got a great episode for you. It's an interview this time. And I'm chatting with Matt, who is the venue booker for the Black Heart in Camden. Now, if you know your London uh, music scene, the Black Heart is a great, great venue. I love going there. I've been there quite a few times. It's still quite a long way from me, but I really like going. Um, and I just thought it would be a great venue to talk about kind of the practicalities of venues and bands and how they interact and what you should and shouldn't do and things like that. So in that spirit, we chat about all sorts in this episode. We chat about keeping the venue and the promoter on side as a band, making wiggle room in your set timings and the backline that you need to bring for gigs. It's a really great episode. I'm going to stop talking and just say on with the interview. So today on the podcast, I am joined by Matt, who is a uh, a venue booker, I believe is the right phrase, for the Black Heart in Camden. Matt, how are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? Warm. <laughs> warm. I'm a little uh, warm and a little hungover from a show last night, but surviving. Doing well, apart from that. Um, to, to, the, to the dear listener, I know you'll be listening to this in late September when it's probably freezing. We're recording this in the middle of August when it's not. So. Yes extremely not that's all i'll say about cold <laughs> extremely not cold uh so as always matt my first question is from an online random question generator okay this should be and <laughs> my random question for you this week is what fictional place would you like to go to most like to go to a fictional place would i like to go to um that's a really hard question to answer <laughs> Um, for some reason, part of me went straight to uh, the apartment in a razorhead, but I don't know why I thought that. Because <laughs> um, I don't know what I'd do when I was there, but yeah, that was the first image that popped into my mind for some unknown reason. Um, but yeah, I don't know, some sort of David Lynchian, nightmarish LA noir type of setting could. Doesn't sound like the most appealing place to be, but. I don't know, I quite like that. You know, you've got to take a bit of the darkness. That's kind of. Uh, it's how us goths survive. <laughs> That's why we don't do well in the heat. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if it was if it was me, it would be the Green Dragon um, in the Shire. Oh yeah, place to be. Get me into a yeah. Hobbit pub. I mean, to be fair, like yeah, any any pub will do, really. Fantasy pub. Get some fantasy mead on the go. I do like mead, actually. I'm not at it in a while. Yeah, it seems to be coming a bit more prevalent, actually. Um, my first, I guess, uh, real question for you um, is: What is your approach to um, booking bands? Do you do you work through promoters, or do you deal directly with the artists themselves? Or so, I mean, my experience sort of comes twofold, really, because uh, I operate as a venue booker for the Black Heart, but I'm also a promoter as well, separately from that. So in a black heart sense, uh, sort of in a venue sense, you know, we, we do work with a lot of external promoters, uh, I'd say on a, in inverted commas, normal period of time, anything up to 90% of our bookings will be external promoters hiring the venue, basically. Um, COVID threw quite a spanner in the works for that because we did socially distanced shows. We were one of the first venues in the country actually just to put a seat in. Um, and obviously, finance-wise, when you've only got 45 people in your venue, it's not really, uh, you know, it doesn't really work for an external promoter financially. So then 100% of the gigs became in-house. 
uh, at that point. So in a strange way in that sort of uh, COVID period, we were, well, my job was almost busier than it had ever been because I was not just running the venue, but promoting every single show as well, which worked out really well, actually. Uh, almost all of them were sold out, which, you know, I mean, 45 people shouldn't be that difficult to do, but when it's sort of a seated gig and under, you know, restrictions and that it is a bit more difficult although the older ones of us you know would say that the idea of watching a band and seated and putting your hand up and getting beer bought to your lap isn't a terrible thing but um yeah so i'd say yeah in a normal time it's sort of uh, mainly external promoters um we do do in-house shows but they tend to be either ones that i specifically like the bands specific events that we're organizing like weekenders or festivals that are kind of under the black heart banner or you know shows that i think are worth a punt um you know i do get agents contacting me directly and uh, there's a few agents that i work with quite regularly um and they sort of we have a bit of a mutual trust so i can take their shows without too much bother um you know you know without sort of thinking that i'm going to lose the venue money um but yeah i mean it's something that we always like to do at the black heart is give our stamp on it so we're always looking to put shows on and we do enjoy doing that but you know we've got a, a, a huge diary to fill and we have uh you know up to 300 shows a year one of the busiest venues in probably in the country actually um so yeah there's no way you could promote that many yourself you actually go mad i think so, uh, that's true big job so yeah i mean a lot of external promoters and the external promoters themselves you know range from everything from the big players like AG and Live Nation, right down to people putting on their first ever show, um, which we, you know, we do encourage. We want, we want new blood, um, but <laughs> if, if they do it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So what would you do if a band came to you, sent you an email, whatever it is, and said, essentially, we would like to play at your venue? <laughs> what would you what what's the next steps because i imagine you get a lot of that kind of email i mean i've got a little folder that's got about 600 of those in currently so yes it's a very regular occurrence um i think that unfortunately i do get contacted by a lot of bands that don't quite realize that that's not necessarily the way to go about it um emailing a venue it's different in different parts of the world you know i, I definitely find in europe when i've played in europe myself a lot of the venues book in-house because they are you know either runners community co-ops or um you know a run not saying run at a loss but it's less about a business making money so it's a bit more of a art space that they can then almost act as bookers rather than people trying to keep a, a venue afloat same thing in the states i think a lot of bar owners own their bar in America, um, it's changing a little bit now, but I think again, so when the, when you own your own bar, you've got scope to kind of be a bit more prevalent on what you want to do within it. The problem in the UK that we have is that most venues, the space is rented or, um, you know, there might be a, a person that owns the bar and the people that are operating it is sort of a different structure. Um, so more often than not in the UK, unfortunately, it's the same reason why a lot of UK venues don't have like accommodation and things like that as well. You know, it's just not, they're not really run in that way. So I get a lot of those emails from bands um, coming through 
really keen and it's really nice to see you know they're keen and they're trying to be proactive but sometimes emailing the venue directly isn't necessarily the best way to go up as well because i have so many i I simply can't reply to all of them um and it feel, I feel bad about it. You know, I've had a couple of arguments with people before when they're like, well, you know, you could have got back to me. And I'm like, oh, I've got so much other work to do. All these emails coming in. I don't have time to sit there. I'd love to sit there and spend my day listening to new music. That sounds great. But, um, you know, the reality of business is that you just don't have that much spare time. Um, so, yeah, I still think it's, you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't do it because, there have been times where bands have hit me up and it's been just the right moment. And I'm like, do you know what? I've got the perfect gig for you. Um, and you know, we do recommend bands that come through to us to the promoters as well sometimes. So it's, it, it's, it's all a bit symbiotic in that respect. You know, there's not, it's not really like a, a specific route that will always work. You know, there's different, different ways you can do it. But I think that the time spent hitting up promoters rather than venues themselves would probably be, be better spent for some of these bands. Um, also, you know, sometimes knowing where you are in, in the sort of, you know, if you're a brand new band, um, the idea of sort of just trying to come in and hire a venue or, you know, put your own night on, it doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes it can work really well because you're new, but there's definitely a, um, an over ambition, I think, with some bands, uh, where they'd not taken, you know, you got you got to go through those steps. You got to be the first on the bill. You got to play the free entry show. Then you kind of come up through. Not, I don't like to say through the ranks because that makes it sound like a hierarchy, which I hate. But you know, you got to kind of pay your dues a little bit. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's kind of what happens. I mean, like I say, I've I've discovered some really amazing bands through those type of emails. Um, but it is quite hard to wade through them all sometimes. And they all kind of sound the same. It's almost like a lot of them have used like a, like an email generator, like, hi, we're a blah, blah, blah. We're a fresh new funky band from Southeast London. You know, like uh, I, th- I would say that like to stand out, it's short and sharp to the point and let your music do the, the talking, you know? Yeah. So y- if, if, someone was determined to write an email to you despite what you said then it would be to the point and it would be i guess with some links to some music just in case you got time to listen yeah for sure and and something visual as well now when i say visual i don't necessarily mean a picture of the band but you know if you've got some sort of striking artwork or something you know stick that in there because that can often give like a direction of where the band's coming from you know i think you know in all art forms music and the art that it's contained within are always quite, um, you know, to use the word again, symbiotic, they play off each other. So, um, you know, if you've got like a monolithic piece of artwork, put it on there so I can see it straight away and straight away know what you're about. Or if you've, you know, sort of electronic band, you've got this really striking sort of laser looking, um, eighties artwork, then get that on there, you know? Um, and that could, that could be a, a band picture, although, you know, I try not to judge bands by what they look like. You know, I suppose we're all human at the end of the day. We inevitably do. So, um, But yeah, I think um, not sounding desperate as well. That is another thing I would, I would say. <laughs> Some of the emails just sound, I mean, <laughs> they might be desperate at that point, but, you know, you want to kind of make it sound like the band has something to offer rather than trying to 
make it sound like the venue owes you something, you know. Totally. I think a lot of people, especially in new younger bands, do feel like they're sort of owed an audience that they don't yet have. And it's very that's a very difficult scenario, especially for a business. Yes, exactly. And I would also say don't exaggerate because we can see right through it. You know, if you're like, oh, we played with Iron Maiden, and then you find out that they basically were on a festival with 18 stages and they played first on the on the on the Thursday <laughs> in the car park tent, you know, for the catering stuff. Then, uh, <laughs> you know, like things like that, you can you can just read through the BS a little bit. So you know, just be honest and talk about the things you have done. You know, it's important, I guess, to say certain bands that you might have played with and things like that, but it's not the be-all and end-all. You know, you talk about yourself, not other people. You know, bring it into your own realm, not not outside. Would you look at social media numbers? Would that be part of your thinking a bit further down the line? Yeah, or is that not- I think, unfortunately, it is something that does happen. Um, you know, it's not so much like picking it apart because I've had bands that have sold out three nights in a row and only had 300 likes on Facebook. And likewise, I've had bands with 50,000 likes on Facebook that have struggled to pull 15 people. So, um, and you know, in this day and age where people buying likes and potentially as well, you could have a band that's liked not necessarily for their music. It might be for the antics. Um, which doesn't necessarily translate into ticket sales. Um, you know, if they had a moment on a TV program or something, yeah, that can bolster likes in a way. Or as well, like older bands seem to have a lot more likes because when Facebook was still more of a relevant thing, people would, that was the only platform. So people would rack up likes. Whereas now I feel like new bands, I, I see really good bands when they're sort of don't really have much of a Facebook presence. Um, obviously Instagram's kind of taken over. I'm still not quite convinced in my sphere of heavy music and things that your TikToks and that, they're still a little bit, <laughs> a little bit far from my realm. But, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing. You want, you, you want to judge the social media presence and their ability to get it out to fans. You know, if, if a band has 200,000 likes on Facebook, simply by posting a show, it's going to reach a lot of people. Uh, especially if they put some money behind it as well. Um, but I think things like what record label they have behind them and there's other types of backing that I think are as important um, and how they carry themselves, like the, the sort of demeanor that the band carries themselves with can obviously uh, often give you like a clue to where they're at in their career. Um, and like I say, you know, you can have a new band that will pull really well simply because it's a new thing. It's fresh, it's, it's exciting. They pull their mates down. I think we all suffer from that thing. Those of us that have been in bands for 15, 20 years that you're like, your mates are sort of like, yeah, I've kind of seen you a few times now, mate. <laughs> it's not really my thing, but I'm sort of humoring you at first. But, um, and that's actually quite a nice thing as a band is like, it's very good when bands can bring all their mates down. But what's a really nice feeling as a band is, that point where you're playing a show and there's no one you know in the audience because a you kind of feel like they're either there because they're actually fans of the band they're not sort of doing you a favor or you're reaching new ears um you know a mate of mine once said to me he'd rather play in front of 20 people whose minds he blew rather than 200 people that couldn't give a toss so yeah i think uh i think that yeah inevitably going back to the original question inevitably Social media likes is a thing, but it's not the be-all and end-all. 
Um, and genuine likes are more important than, than yeah. If you have, if you're uh, able to convert those likes that you have on your social media into strong ticket sales, that's what's more important. You've reminded me. Um, I don't know if you heard about this. Back in 2018, there was a guy uh, called I think his name was Jared Threaton. Oh, is this the and thing at the made, underworld? <laughs> yeah, he made he made this 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 fake band essentially of session musicians who didn't know what was going on bought loads of likes made a fake record label website really impressive on one level and then booked venues around the uk who were uh, it was crazy yeah it takes an almost psychotic level of determination for what is essentially a prank <laughs> um but you know i think then there was i don't think it ever happened in the end but i know there was talk of him after all that blew up and then when he was he then booked a tour like a year later and everyone was like, well, actually, yeah, I will put him on because there was such a sensationalism, it's really hard to say, uh, around the whole thing that people probably actually would come out to the show now just to see what it's like. But, um, yeah, I think uh, th- things like that are quite fun, but um, I wouldn't recommend it as a way to get your band. <laughs> Oh, an expensive way to get somewhere. I mean, this is the problem, you know. I, I we're all from different backgrounds, and I, I, I'm not going to sit here and uh, demean people who come from money. But there is definitely a sort of um, I've met people who play in bands that come from rich backgrounds that do it right and don't have that rich kid demeanor of never having played a note and turning up with the best gear of all time, you know. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're a really good band, you should be able to come and smash it on whatever, you know. And I think that's something that's definitely hard now. I see a lot of these kids come in with these, you know, and they have Kempers instead of amps, and they have so much on backing tracks, and there's so many things that can go wrong. I mean, you've got to think that when you're in a band, every element that you're adding is another thing that can go wrong, you know. Gigs are visceral things that they <laughs> they don't always go as planned. Um so in that respect, you know, I, I really I enjoy people who play with instrumentation and bring in extra elements and make it exciting, but you've also got to be able to just smash it on a standard setup. Otherwise, you know, smoke and mirrors otherwise, isn't it? Like, still that, it's like the bollocks that Kiss did when it's like having very average songs and then shooting off a few fireworks to mask it. <laughs> that tells me everything that you think about Kiss in one go. Hey, man, I mean, every, everyone's into different things. <laughs> The thing I often think, because I've I've seen lots of bands where there's big backing tracks, and they usually like tech metal bands and things like that. There's often, to to my mind, and I'm not trying to demean anyone who's in a band like that at all, especially when it's really complex in terms of the live stuff that's being played. The backing stuff just seems to kind of disappear anyway. Like l- live gigs, there's just not as much kind of fidelity to the sound as a recording. That's just true, and it's just this weird thing that I don't always get why there's so many backing tracks when you can't really hear them. Well, all. that's such an interesting point you bring up, actually. I think that you definitely shouldn't try and make your life set sound like the record. Um, it's a different thing. It's a different setting. It shouldn't sound the same. It, um, if you do make it sound the same, it would probably be quite boring. I think one of the worst gigs I ever saw in my life was Megadeth in the late 90s because they were so good that they it just sounded like the record. you know. And I was like, this is the most boring gig I've ever been to. Like, um, so yeah, I think you know, live's got to have an edge. It's got a, it's the little mistakes. It's the little 
uh, it's the energy that you're you're feeding off of the vibe. It's not you know people aren't listening to every single nuance. They've had three beers, you know. It's loud. They're talking to their mate. They want to have a good time. They're not listening to every single note that you play. I've I've done it myself as musicians. We're always self-deprecating. You come off stage, you're like, I played terribly. And then everyone comes up to you saying that was an amazing show because you, you forget that they're not being critical to that level that you are of yourself. Um, obviously, you know, there's, there is sloppy that goes too much the other end. But, you know, some of my favorite bands are things like I Hate God and that where they kind of play on that um, sloppiness in a way, you know, the sort of coming back in after the notes, um, uh, playing on the end of things rather than necessarily on the on the beat, you know, making that sort of drawl. Um, and you can create energy like that um, in both aspects. You can go, you can go the other way as well, and sort of play ahead of the beat and make it really high energy, high octane, uh, get the whole room moving. So you can definitely play with the dynamics live in a different way to what you do on the record. And I don't think you necessarily need to be as picky. Um, you got to think of it sort of in grander terms rather than those little micro things. You got to think what's the entire swathe of the music doing um is it going huge and booming down to quiet and then back up that's what you want to do rather than necessarily picking out every single tiny little nuance um because i think that's a live gig isn't the setting to do that totally i 100 percent agree <laughs> long story short sorry i went well for one then i can't remember what the, uh, the original question <laughs> was but yeah i don't remember the question was either but it was a very good answer i'll say that but then having said that about you know backing tracks and that i'm a massive fan of 80s industrial music and they put tapes and things to good use you know bands like revolt and cox and and that used the tape as an instrument um so i think that backing tracks and things do have a place if they're used correctly but i think you're right and and it's not meaning to tech metal bands we have some amazing tech metal bands that come through the doors um quite a lot of the bands we have in the black heart that that thing and when it's used right it's it's very good but sometimes you do think like you could have just not had that and it wouldn't have affected the set you know yeah so putting your promoter hat on for a second how do you find um appropriate support bands to make up a bill so obviously, I guess the first thing you do as a promoter is go, you know, who's going to headline? Who's the main the main band here? But then, obviously, bands want to become support bands to kind of get things rolling. But how do you work out who you want to include? Well, I think that it's um, a gig's got always got to have a purpose. You know, um, if it's just playing for the sake of it, I don't really see the point um so quite often the headliner will have a reason to be there whether that's that they're on a tour they've got an album to push um it's a reunion show it's a tribute show you know whatever it is there's always a there's normally a reason for the headliner to be in place um it's very rare that you just randomly get a bunch of bands to play for the sake of it um Obviously, as a venue, you want to fill your nights. So there might be like a random Saturday that I, for some reason, had a cancellation on or something that I'm like, okay, we'll reach out to some bands I know and try and put a good bill together. So once you've got the headliner in place, the supports kind of will kind of fall naturally into that. I mean, I grew up mainly promoting things like Doom and Sludge and Stoner, that kind of thing. And 
I always felt like I was such a fan of that music that I always had a million bands I wanted to put on the stage. So I never really struggled to make lineups because I was always like, if anything, I had too many bands to fit on bills. I was like, oh, I really want to, that band's really good. And you kind of have this thing that if you like it, other people will. So you're, you're keen to put these bands on the stage. You know, if you're passionate about it, it's that passion comes from seeing a gig and loving it and then wanting other people to see that band. Um, and sometimes you want, you feel like you want people to see that band in a certain setting as well. So for example, you might have a, you might've seen a really good grunge band, but and you think, well, they'd actually go really well with the stoner crowd. So when you've got a stoner gig, you're like, well, I'm going to put that grunge band on the bill because it, I think that that's going to really add to it. Um, and on that note as well, you know, mixed bills is always the way to go. I mean, no one wants to sell, see a gig with four bands that sound the same. You know, this is my problem with a lot of extreme metal. I, I love extreme metal and I, so I've grown up on it, but you know, I don't want to see five grindcore bands in a row. Like, um, so I think that's why a lot of genres have got good at diversifying in that. So if you go to the average grindcore gig now, there'll be like a, a hard, hard electronic act somewhere in there or a power violence band or a crust punk band or something that deviates slightly. I always say that there should be a common thread, but everyone should be kind of different from that and different approaching it from a different angle, but all, with a sort of some sort of vague common thread that weaves through. Um, so obviously, yeah, you might have a whole bunch of bands that you've been wanting to put on shows already anyway, so you, your lineup almost falls into place. Sometimes, obviously, the headliner might have a band that they want to put on the show. They might be like, oh, we've got these mates in a band that we really want to get on the thing. So you kind of, that's where it becomes like you're working with the, the people because you you want to um, make sure that you don't think they suck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just, they just want to put a band on because it's their mates and, and then regret it later. Um, so, yeah, you kind of work with people in that respect. And mm. a bit, lineups kind of, they kind of build themselves sometimes. It's quite organic and the way they come together. And like I say, occasionally there'll be a thing where I need an opener and then I'll get one of those emails from a band. And I'm like, oh, you fit this perfectly. You just emailed me at the perfect time. Well done. <laughs> the cosmos has come together. Um, there are times where it's harder, where you're searching for bands. I'm a great believer in not going onto social media and sort of being like, hey, does anyone want to play this show? I think that looks reeks of desperation and reeks of a failed show before it's even started. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's scenes out there. Um, you, there'll be other bands that have, the headline might have played with before. Um, maybe in terms of gig swaps, you know, they they might have supported a band up north and then when they come to London, the band that they supported then supports them, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. There's sort of, there's no real hard and fast rule of how, how it works. Um, it just sort of, you kind of have an idea in your mind of what you want it to, to look like. And then it kind of comes together like that. Simple as that. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> just, just like that. Just really easy. <laughs> And also there's different approaches, you know, like we had a really good show last night. It was just sold out with just two bands. And that's the thing. I was thinking, if you don't need five bands on a bill, don't put five bands on a bill. At the end of the day, a two or three band lineup, if it works with just those two or three, it's going to be so much less stress for everyone. So much less, um, yeah, much more breathing room, less equipment in the venue, much more concise and direct um, for the punter. 
Um, I, I think that's one of the mistakes I see a lot of newcomer promoters make is they'll try and cram way too much into the gig. You know. I, yeah, I've been to gigs like that where he he just kind of get to the the quote-unquote main band and he's just so tired that you're just like i kind of want to go home now i mean i was saying earlier you know sort of pushing on a, a bit in the in the years and uh i can't even make it through one band without my back hurting so <laughs> put six in front of me i'd be you'd be lucky if i see half the lineup <laughs> um but you know having said that they're all dayers and things like that are a thing but again as long as they're spread out nicely and they become a relaxed affair um rather than you know, you don't want the punter to feel like they're part of a marathon. <laughs> you know, they're there to have a good time at the end of the day. Um, and also, most people can't handle their drinks, so you can't be a bit careful because if you start too early, they're going to be sloshed. It's <laughs> very true. <laughs> so, a potentially controversial question to some, um, but with good reason. How do you approach curfew as, as, at the venue? Because I guess sometimes you you just reach the cutoff time and you've just got to stop. What's the approach to that? I mean, look, at the end of the day, the last thing you ever want to do is stop a band. You know, it doesn't look good on the venue. It doesn't look good on the band. It doesn't look good on any, anyone. And no one wants that. Yeah. Most people who work in venues play in bands. You know, we all know what it's like. Um, what it tends to come down to, and the best way of dealing with curfews is it's all about advance. It's all about planning. Um, I always say to bands, look, our curfew is 11 o'clock, aim to finish by 10.45 so that you've got a buffer. Um, never never put your gig to go right up to the minute. Um, professional bands can pull that off because they know exactly to the minute how long this is. You know, They've been touring it for four months, they know. But your average sort of um, underground band, it's a, it's, it's a lot more loose than that, you know. I've, I've timed my own band set when we're like, yeah, we're a solid 35 minutes. And then you come off stage, look at your watch, you're like, yeah, we definitely went 10 minutes over. <laughs> um, you know, the singer starts going off on one in between songs, talking about this and that, or, um, you know, just even tuning up, things like that. Those little 30 seconds is build up. And before you know it, you've gone over time. <laughs> I think for a band, it's important to be flexible and be able to cut your set accordingly. Um, yes. I've definitely worked with bands before that can't do that for whatever reason, whether it's like electronically set up, like the things like backing tracks and the such. Um, but yeah, I think the more flexible that a band can be, the better. Um, also be willing to be the band that helps the gig, you know, be like, right, we will cut a song because we want to help the gig along. Um, mm. Don't be that one that's sort of this for whatever reason, that's no one's fault. You're, the gig's running behind time and you're adamant, nope, we must play our entire 40 minutes. We simply can't drop three minutes out of it. It's not doable. You know, don't be that guy. Um, I think that, yeah, like I say, advanced planning um, and letting people know, making sure the promoters put in long enough changeovers. Just going to tell you folks, 10 minutes, 15 minutes is not long enough for a changeover. 20 minutes minimum. Just work with it. Relax. Enjoy yourself. I don't see the point in like shoving these tiny changeovers in, you know. Um, the other thing is if a, the final band is going on late, the sound engineer will normally say to them, like, look, guys, you had a 40-minute slot. You don't have 40 minutes now. You've got 35. I will um, give you a signal um, when it's getting towards the time. Quite often, 
if it's like five to 11 and they're like, right, we've got three more songs then the sound engineer will have to come over the stage mic and say, no, you don't, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, with, with decent planning, it's, um, it's rare that it happens. Uh, and it takes real, um, people of a certain ilk to then be demanding at that point of a show, you know? The, the two things I would say to, to anyone listening, um, and these are very disparate points, but there we go. It's the way it goes. Um, is one, if you want to be helpful to yourself as a band, aside from timing your, your, your rehearsals and sort of working out how long a set is, consider investing in a small glow-in-the-dark digital thing to put on your pedal board with a like, clock. And then you can just see the time and you, you know how long you have left and you don't have to scrabble around. That's a good idea. But the other thing, of course, is that some of you may have been shocked to hear the idea that you need to have songs that you can cut and ways to shorten the set. And to some of you, that's that will sound like sacrilege. But the thing is, you you need to be a friend to these venues and these promoters because... If you're if you're going to be awkward and difficult, you're not going to be invited back. <laughs> it's just the brutal truth of things. You need to be helpful. That's 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 the unfortunate thing, you know. Um, bad reputation goes a long way, you know. And I, you know, I get it. I come from the doom scene where you'll get bands and their entire set is two twenty minute songs. You know, I, I get it. <laughs> um, it's difficult, but um, I think that's something I would say is be realistic with yourself. You know, the amount of bands that. I see then they're like yes we've got 35 and then they play and it's 45 and you're like well somewhere along the line you've either tried to convince yourself that it's less than what it is or you've tried to cram more in or you've not allowed time for the bits between the songs like i say those couple of minutes here where you're chatting to the audience they build up i would say if you've got a 35 minute set you want to be coming in with about 28 minutes worth of music because those seven minutes will go <laughs> like they disappear into the magic air of gig land, but they'll go. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and if you play it fast and you come off stage early, that's great. You know, you leave the punters wanting more, you've gone off high energy and you've helped the gig along by five minutes. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know? What kind of gear should a band bring to a gig and what would they usually expect to be provided? I'm aware this varies from gig to gig and things like that, but I guess speaking from your own experience in the Black Heart. I mean, so for the Black Heart, for example, we have cabs in-house, which are very kindly donated by Orange Amplifiers. Not, that's not a plug. That's just the truth. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a very good relationship with, with them, um, and they've supplied us with some really nice stuff. We don't have an in-house drum kit. And the reason we don't have that is because drummers are the worst people on earth. No, I'm joking. <laughs> drummers, uh, you know, inevitably house drum kits, they just get, wrecked you know when you've got 300 mm. shows a year that's a thousand bands a year playing the venue potentially <sighs> drum kits are the most fragile thing and they just get battered they fall apart bits get missing um and then what you end up with then is you end up with a shoddy kit that isn't what you want to be providing people i'd rather provide them good equipment or not provide it um so yeah, we don't have a house kit. We have a few bits, you know, that people inevitably leave. We've sort of acquired three drum stalls currently. I don't understand how we've got three, but um, so you know, we're always there, ready to help people in that respect. But I kind of had this. I have this. I've actually had this debate quite recently. I also have a bit of a fit, a thing where one of the reasons we don't have a drum kit is that I feel like as a headliner, if you can't manage to get a drum kit to the venue, 
I'm possibly going to suggest that you shouldn't be headlining the gig. Um, if you're taking things seriously enough and you're I'm not saying you've got to be like a professional musician, but if you're being serious enough about it, mm. you'll be able to get the equipment that you need to, to the venue to play a gig. Um, so it always baffles me when you get some quite big bands and you'll be like, yeah, so obviously you'll need to bring a full drum kit and your heads and breakables, which is standard. And they're sort of like, Oh, Oh, don't you have a drum kit? I'm like, well, no, you know, you've sold X amount of records. Like, I think you can bring a drum kit to a gig. Right? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, so that's the standard thing for us is, but one band would bring a full drum kit, preferably to share, you know, and I, I understand that there's times when, drummers have like a strange setup or you know for instance i've got a gig coming up where one of the bands has two drummers so they have to kind of bring extra stuff but in general the headliner should really be providing drum shells and preferably hardware for for the other bands um obviously cymbals um snare kick pedal each band would bring those guitar heads breakables i mean you ask anyone in the industry they've all got horror stories of bands that have turned up even without guitars uh, what <laughs> no surely not <laughs> uh, it, it's happened yeah um but you know in that instance normally there's like a band on the bill that are very kind and willing um and again what goes around comes around i've lent my bass head to people before and then had it reciprocated when mine breaks or whatever so I think in in healthy music music scenes and circles, there is a, a camaraderie and sharing that goes on. So, um, and yeah, on the flip side of that, you don't want as much as I want people to bring all of their stuff. The other thing you don't want is four bands turning up with four entire backlines because most small venues simply don't have the space to put it. So this is where again advancing the big word I would say advancing pre communication before the show. Um, this is what all this is there to iron out. Um, most shows with a certain side will have a rep. Um, the venue will have their own side of it. Um, you know, in advance, we always send our tech spec over to <clears throat> the promoter for him, them to share with the bands. I, even though it's not my job, if there's an external promoter to arrange who's bringing what, I always make sure I say to the promoter, have you arranged who's bringing the drum kit? You know, the less surprises that you have on the day, the better. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of what bands should bring, that's that's what you should be expected. Now, you know, I understand that some bands don't have access to a van and things like that, and it's transport costs are going through the roof. Um, but um, for a venue of our size, that's that's what it is. And I think that. I'd almost go as far as to say is be wary of a venue that has a drum kit <laughs> because uh, I would say that is possibly more of a pub pay-to-play type of scenario, which we all want to avoid and eradicate. Um, but then obviously when you go to like bigger festivals, you might be expected to provide more um, or less. <laughs> this is where it gets kind of strange. You go to a, a big festival, I played Bloodstock last year, and they had so much amazing gear. We did, almost didn't need to bring anything. Um, literally bought my bass and my pedals and that was it because the gear they had was better than what I had um, but then if you want your sound and you're playing on a place that's big enough that they can put your stuff on its own riser or there's plenty of space to store it or what whatnot, then that's the thing but again this will all this would all come with 
um, the advancing. Um, there is ex- exceptions to the rule. If at the Black Heart we're putting on like a three-day festival, I will quite often rent heads and drum kit just so that it makes the flow of the day easier. Um, if I've got a band play it, doing a fly-in, like we have Bombers, which is uh, Abath doing their Motorhead cover thing. Obviously, they came in. They could only take what they can carry on the plane. So then obviously we provide more. But um, again, that's all arranged in advance. So the average gig... Yeah, standard breakables, heads, and someone brings that kit. Yes, that's basically what it comes down to, communication. And as a band, you need to be, you know, ready to talk. Don't get the email and then the day before the gig suddenly announce that you don't have a drum kit. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, But then having said that also, I don't want it to go too far the other way. I've had bands trying to advanced shows like two months out and i'm like i don't think we need to talk about this quite yet tickets have only just gone on sale <laughs> so, um yeah just a sensible time a couple of weeks before the show or whatever what in your opinion like from a venue perspective is the worst thing that a band can do around gigs i'm sure there's many things but what's the worst thing do you think yes i mean i'm one of the things i would say is that old adage if you're rude to your waiter, they're going to spit in your food, right? So if you come in with that mad attitude, you treat the sound engineer horribly, you speak back to the venue staff, you know, you're effing and blinding and doing this and that before you've even played a note, you're going to get bad service, you know? Then no one's going to help you make an amazing show in that respect, you know? Uh, so kindness and, you know, general demeanor goes a long way um i come from a quite underground scenario so for me i really don't like rockstar bullshit um i understand i like i like bands to you know get charged up and have a good time and you know have a few drinks get on stage give it some but i don't want someone who can't handle their booze coming off stage breaking something in my venue um breaking our equipment that we provide like the mics and things like that um touch wood most bands are really good uh especially in heavy music um people tend to be especially english heavy musicians tend to kind of have a camaraderie where they they get the vibe they don't like they they don't want to smash up the venue because they know that it's not going to be beneficial to them in the long run um, and the scene is only as good as every element within it. You know, venues are important. I mean, we went for a £160,000 crowdfunder to save the Black Heart over COVID. So I think that proves that people don't want to come in and just destroy the place, you know. Um, but having said that, you know, with that many shows a year, there's always going to be some anno- annoying and awkward people. Uh, but yeah, I'd say the worst things you can do are essentially breaking the venue or treating the staff there like you think you're better than them or um I, i'm quite strict on things like even if a band has their own sound engineer with them you're not allowed to touch our stuff without our engineer on site um things like that um we're quite strict on not bringing their own 
well, people can bring their own beers in and things, but they have to pour them into a plastic cup. They can't be walking around like they own the place. Um, it's general demeanor, you know, there's so many things, just the things that don't make you not be an asshole in the street. It's the same thing in a venue. Like, you know, you wouldn't speak to your mum like that. Don't speak to other people like that. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, there are a couple of other things that we've had to implement, like not using glitter cannons. Oh, right. Okay. I'd not even thought about that. <laughs> it, goes blo- it goes bloody everywhere. <laughs> and speaking of bloody, black metal bands using animal products and things like that, I say no. And it's not because we're crazy vegans or anything like this. It's because it drips down into where our subs are underneath the stage and it stinks and you can't get that smell out. So yeah, I think that just think about what you're doing. I like performance and things like that. Maybe not to the kids level, but um, just be prepared Mm. to deal with your stuff. You know, Uh, if you make a mess, you clear it up, you know, don't leave stuff for other people to deal with. Um, Own your shit, you know, like own yourself. Um, be in control in, in control of your own stuff. The same thing with the actual playing of the gig. You know, be in charge of your own equipment. Understand your equipment before you get to the gig. Don't be relying on other people to like plug your stuff into the right sockets and things like that. You know, um, that's something that's quite frustrating with a lot of upcoming bands. Is you can be up and coming and new without having that amateurish edge to you. Now, obviously, it's all a learning curve, and you. You know, no one's born knowing everything. And the more gigs you play, you get to know it. And people being helpful is good. Um, and learning from people is good. But to a certain extent, there's a lot that you can learn before you even step foot on that stage. Um, make sure that you know what your stuff is doing so that you're relying on people less. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Be, be in control of your own thing. So speaking of um, things bands shouldn't do, <laughs> um I almost hesitate to ask this question. Have you had any nightmare experience gigs where everything went wrong in the venue? And we can obviously, you know, mention no names to keep things nice and civil. I mean, we've we've had, to be fair, rather than sort of thinking about what bands have done, we've had things that have been outside of everyone's, um, you know, control. Um, We had... Obviously, we're in the middle of Camden Town. It's uh, it's the middle of the city. You know, we've been had to be closed before because of incidents that have happened outside. Um, not not quite drive-bys, but you know, like uh, you know, maybe there's an incident that the police have cornered off the whole road. That's an incident that's happened down the end of the, the street, and you're like, "Well, I've got 300 people coming for a gig tonight," and they're like, "No, you ain't, mate." <laughs> you know, so then we've had to deal with that. We've had to deal with our own equipment breaking, um, you know, sound discs work until they don't. And then, uh, you know, most venues like to have a backup of most things, but you know, it's a, when finances are tough and that obviously it just so happens that there's certain times where you, you don't have everything that you need. Um, we've had to hire things in last minute. We're lucky being in Camden town. because we have a bit of a network of other venues that, you know, me and the sound engineer have literally run across the road to the Devonshire Arms or gone up to the Boston Music Room or wherever, like on the scrounge at the 11th hour <laughs> before the show, um, running back down the street with <laughs> equipment in our arms. Um, so, yeah, I think things like that catch people off guard, things like power cuts and that, you know, 
it's uh, they happen. Um, and this is what I mean about being adaptable and malleable. If bands can be understanding of things, um, then, you know, show stops are rare, but when they do happen, it's normally for circumstances that are beyond everyone's control. Um, so understanding of that is important. Um, I seem to remember we had the band Vexed and their show got pulled while they were on stage. I can't remember what happened now, but um, they were very understanding about it. Um, obviously, they were disappointed, but they understood. Uh, they took it graciously, and um, and that goes a long way, you know. Um, I think uh, it takes something quite extreme for that to happen. So understanding that it's the last thing that anyone wants so if it gets to that point it's like you know um yeah but yeah in terms of bands themselves i mean i mean obviously <laughs> yeah, where do we start <laughs> there's been all sorts of incidents over the years um oh god do you know what i'm not gonna go there i think that um there's been incidents that have been unfortunate. It normally involves like a band member being, I don't know, violent towards a crowd member or saying something that's not acceptable or, um, you know, maybe taking things wrong and trying to have a pop at the venue on stage. Um, I would say that's something that's, you know, if even if you feel like you've been done badly by the venue, have decorum, be the bigger person, get through your set, bring it up with them afterwards. Don't go on stage going, oh, the venue did this, and I thought that this was going to happen, and be like a whiny little brat. Like, you know. Um, it's not fun for anyone to watch, if nothing else. No, exactly. I, when, whenever I see people do that, everyone in the audience is just really like awkwardly looking at each other, just like, oh don't really want to be here right now. <laughs> you know, it's not really what I came here for was to hear them have a pop at the venue. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to, so yeah, I, I think I'm probably going to just, just kind of uh, leave it, leave it there. <laughs> leave it there. I mean, I, f I feel like you've, 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 you've said things, but you've, you'd be very good. Not given any names. I wasn't looking for names, which is great. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely been incidences where people have been on the wrong side of wasted and you kind of, you know, they sort of come out. You might have even been having drinks with them beforehand, so you've even contributed to it. But then they go on stage, you're like, oh, yeah, I think uh, you maybe had about half a bottle of whiskey too much there. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> we had a couple of car crashes like that. A couple of them have been uh, filmed as well. <laughs> yeah, go and do your own digging if you want to find them. <laughs> Uh, so my final question to you, and this might be the hardest question of all, I don't know, is what is the best band that you have seen at the Black Heart? Oh, my God. <laughs> We've had such a varied amount of things and so many shows that have been special for all sorts of reasons. Um, that it's a very hard question to ask, answer. Um just to give a shout out to my mates Tuscar the other day who came in and played an absolutely destroying show. Just absolutely, you know, those when they say they tore the roof off the place, um, that was one of those. But I think what's actually quite good and what's quite positive, and one of the things that keeps me in this weird <laughs> ride that we're on as 
venue owners and promoters is um, almost once a month. I feel like I have one of those where I see a band that blows me away, and that's what kind of keeps us doing it. I think because you you know you get down about things and you, things don't seem to be going your way and the struggles and things. Sometimes you wonder is, is this worth it and you know, those moments where a band is absolutely smashing it and you can see all the heads nodding, everyone's just on the same plane of just being blown away by this amazing set. Um, that's, uh, that's quite special. I think one of the ones that sticks in my mind is when we had a band called Brothers of the Sonic Cloth play, and that's Tad from Tad, <laughs> Tad Doyle from Tad. We were standing at the bar with him. And he said, like, oh, you know, the last time I played uh, London was in 1992 or one or whatever it was. And we were playing in between Mud Honey and Nirvana. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty special to now have him playing on our stage. Um, another one, I was a massive Fudge Tunnel fan when I was uh, a kid. And when Ungraven played, which is John from Conan, they had uh, Dave Riley from Fudge Tunnel playing and i remember coming down during soundcheck walked down from my office and just walked in and just got a big smile on my face because i was like well i just heard his bass tone and it just yeah just made an instant smile come on onto my chops but um yeah there's been so many so many amazing shows and i think there's camaraderie ship with bands when they're on stage and they're smashing it and they're having a great time um, obviously some of the bigger bands that we've had through doing underplays, you know, have been special and we've had like Crowbar or the Bronx or Yob or bands like that doing massive underplays. They're always very special events because bands are sort of, uh, the fans are like, they're just in awe that they're that close to their, their idols. Also, I think it's very impressive when you get like a solo act that really smashes it. Um, we have Joe Quayle comes and does her cello things sometimes and they're so hauntingly beautiful and it's when it's just one person on stage there's something that I really respect about that because they've got nothing to hide behind you know when you play in a heavy band you've got quite a lot of smoke and mirrors to hide behind in the respect of the sound but when it's like a solo performer and even some of the acoustic stuff we've had um yeah, when it's kind of stripped back and it's there's nowhere to hide, and then someone still gives a, a, a sterling performance, that's uh, that's quite special. I, I feel um, there's probably a million things that I think of as soon as we finish this interview that I'm like, oh no, that was my favourite show. Oh no, that was my favourite show. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's inevitable. But I mean, that's you know, we're blessed with uh, booking good bands. <laughs> totally. So, so as I, I said, as I said before we started recording, it's one of my favourite venues in in London. And I have to travel a fair way to get to it. I mean, this, uh, it kind of goes back around to what I was saying. You know, we're all fans of music. So essentially the bands we book are the bands we want to see. So that's where it's like the genuine passion is that we'll, I, I go to a lot of the gigs, not necessarily because I have to be there, it's because I want to be there. Um, because, uh, yeah, booking bands that I think are good, it's not just a numbers game. We're, you know, there are companies out there that are just – flinging muck and seeing what sticks and what's going to make him a buck but that's not what we're really about you know obviously we've got a business to run and we want to be successful but we are interested in providing a space for music to thrive um so that again feeds into all the questions we've been saying about why you shouldn't treat the venue like shit and why um mm. you know the passion that comes with it and why bands will help each other out it's it's all it's like a big organism that's vibrating. So. 
So, yeah. What a description. <laughs> well, there we go. What a that's that's quite the parting thought. Uh, Matt, it's been really good to talk with you about all things um, live music and booking. Well, thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, please come down the Black Heart and have a couple of drinks and enjoy our band sometime soon. So that is it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. That was a great one. I think there was loads of really valuable takeaways from that episode. I'd love to hear about what your takeaways have been. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear, as I say. That is it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. I've not had any in a while, sad face. And I really value them because they really bump up um, the, the podcast and other people can discover it. So please do that. Please also share it with any friends and maybe bandmates if you thought it was useful. As I say, I think there were loads of useful nuggets in there for you to think about and take away. Finally, I really appreciate every single one of you. If you're interested, there is a community on Facebook called the Music Survival Guide Community. Hop over there for chats about music and band life with other musicians and industry people. And I will see you next time. 